Greetings from the Murder of Grey podcast, where we look behind the curtain of our own minds. Alright, let's have some fun. Hello and welcome to the Murder of Great podcast, where each week we bring various moral and ethical dilemmas that we have found across the internet and across time. And we ask the dumb questions so you don't have to. And as always, I'm Christian. And I'm Chris. And welcome back, everybody, to another fun and exciting episode. We are talking about failed utopias today. And, you know, it's such a fascinating topic to both of us, really. Like, it's such a fun one to think about where it's like the idea of having a perfect society is such a like a far away thing. Right. And so many people have tried it. It's been blasted over media across the ages. And there's a lot of really great examples of it. And, you know, as we were doing research for this, we really have decided that we think that this could be multiple parts. Like there's too much to just jam into one. So expect to see some more of these hit our feed because it is a fun topic to go over and just seeing what like what links people go to <laughs> to try and acquire this perfect society for themselves. And it's so interesting to really dive into what a perfect society is for each one of these, you know, individual leaders or whoever's been trying to establish these groups or whatnot. But the the idea for this first came from, you know, revisiting a book that I loved growing up, and that was The Giver. Um, I recently saw the movie on Netflix about a week, two weeks ago, and I was like, oh, I love this book. Let me, you know, watch this movie. Movie, not that great. <laughs> not gonna lie. <laughs> but I just, it really brought me back to when I was reading that book, because I read that book so many times. I loved the idea of it, but the whole premise of it, if you're not aware of The Giver, is that these people live in a very, like, enclosed society. Think like Bubble Town, Right. And in there, there is just this sense of sameness there. Like they try to, you know, dumb down all emotions through medication and like everyone is just the same. All jobs are handed to them. Like it's it's like that society where there's no hatred, there's no judgment, there's no competition. So that means that there breeds no resentment or anger or things like that. Right. Um, but in the process, I don't know if it's like was, you know, uh, uh, I guess expected or thought about, but they everyone sees in all black and white. There is no more color anymore. And that's to, you know, really harken back to the idea of sameness to it, like destroy the idea of individuality so that everyone is on the same level playing field right like it's the idea of being colorblind in society you know like i don't see race i don't see that like everyone just sees the same and it's 
there's one character who actually sees color and that person is the giver and the giver is actually or the receiver or the holder like he has multiple names but the idea is that he holds all the memories of the past the memories of war the memories of hatred the memories of love the memories like even happy memories he holds all of those for for the society to help you know, guide them in a direction of like staying same and keeping them away from making bad decisions to go back to what where they were. And then everything starts to, you know, break down, of course, because you get, you know, an angsty teenager in on this important role. He realizes that there's love in the world. And then, of course, you know, I need to bring love back to everybody and blah, blah, blah. You know where the story goes. <laughs> but it's just one of those stories that really spoke to me when I was younger. I just love that idea the visuals that they were able to portray in the book of being able to slowly start to see colors and start to realize that there's so much more to the world around them. And there's a lot to go into this, but it really got us thinking about like what utopias or what societies in real life like tried this like really strive to make this happen and there's some really interesting ones and pretty comedic ones i would say too and you know i would say that it even dives into a lot of like cult societies as well right like the idea for them was they were making their perfect society but there's a lot of problems with that right and a lot of times perfect societies there are these like ideas of these utopias just means that they want to not follow laws or they want to do their own thing with no repercussions right and it's it gets really problematic <laughs> that's to say the least and we have a couple really interesting ones uh in store for you guys but before we dive into the utopias that we have found um Chris, like, what's your take on the utopian society? Like, what do you think it's even feasible? Do you think it's something that we can accomplish? And but at the same time, be able to listen to everyone's, you know, questions, quandaries, needs, desires, all that stuff. Is it is it even possible? I especially after reading up on a lot of these failed utopias, if it didn't work back then, it probably won't happen now. And I think a big reason is back then they didn't have social media. They didn't have the power to persuade people. They didn't have all these different ideas being thrown out there, which, you know, in turn changes people's thoughts on situations. Mm -hmm. And you incorporate that now. And of course, there's never going to be a utopia because there's always going to be someone that doesn't agree with it or doesn't like it. You know, there's no way you could persuade everybody that lives there that this is fine you know unless there was some kind of like brainwash or something where you know everyone just deals with it there's always gonna be people that are gonna fight against it or point out problems with it and more and more people will you know feel that doubt and then it just wouldn't work and i mean obviously that even happened back then granted a lot of these failed utopias had very weird ideas with them yeah to an extent like i feel like if they didn't have a lot of these weird ideas they might have been successful but a lot of these cities and islands it's like they incorporate these weird rules and it's like why like yeah. i 
the like a lot of like universal stuff a lot of it's a lot of these cities and places are interesting because it's always a it always seems like it's a libertarian but a lot of their policies that they believe in are socialist and i'm like that's that, like what like yeah. i mean maybe back then like in the 1800s maybe both of those were kind of similar but if you're going by the standards of what both of those like political ideals go by they're like not the same yeah you no, know there, there's there's so much contradictions in these it's ridiculous and i'm just like i it it's weird you know like communal stuff is you know it's a great idea you know if everyone worked together and you know decided not to really like rely on the government as much i mean we as a society could work together but at the same time it's not going to happen because people have their own motives and they're going to use it to their advantage. You know, it's just civilization in general. And I feel like a lot of these utopias have that problem. You know, there's always that one person who has the idea, but all these other people are like, Oh, I'm just going here because it gets me away from the government control and stuff like that. And it's just like, you can't have that kind of mindset in, in these kind of places. No. It, it's always weird to me too because they a lot of these societies the like the leaders or whoever's trying to establish them are trying to they always like to harp on the idea of equal everything right everyone is on the same playing field on the same level everyone gets the same shares right like which is you know I, it's a very communist idea right and mm-hmm. but whenever it boils down to it who's passing out those resources who's making these rules who's establishing what is right and wrong within the society it's the one who's establishing it right it's the leader of the group and so is it really equal at that point right like it's not because they have a final say in everything that's going on and a lot of times too what ends up happening is whenever they encounter something they don't like they change or bend their rules to now you know fix this issue in their society instead of maybe looking at what's for the greater good which is what they harp on so much right and it just creates these weird issues and just strange situations to, <laughs> that they get into <laughs> it's just it's comedic right it's just it's that's why I feel like utopias, they just can't work because you can't make everybody happy. It's not going to happen. Like you said, there's always going to be someone who's going to want to rebel against whatever you're doing. Um, and they might, you know, follow along due to fear, right? Which mm-hmm. is used a lot in these things. Like on, on the surface, like to an outsider, it might look like it's a communal thing. Everyone's working together. But really, there's like an underlying fear of being shunned or being you know separated from the group for x amount of time for whatever it is like there's a lot of different types of punishment that were used within these you know utopian societies in order to keep everyone wrangled in and it's it's such a weird idea because they keep harping on the idea of peace and everyone's equal and we're all in this together but as soon as you have an outside thought, it's like, nope, you're wrong, <laughs> right? Like, it's it, now you're shunned or like, so they, they don't want to stand out. And it, it's, yeah, the, the, the cult-like mentality is so interesting. And I, it's funny because like the, when I first started like doing research, I just thought about it as a utopian thing. But all of these utopias are just cults, right? Like, it's just a Pretty different, much. Like, that, 
it's you know it is what it is but i uh do want to say that when you first told me about the giver movie i was excited to see it because i thought it was this movie that i watched years ago because it was black and white and color and stuff Mm -hmm. and then i realized it wasn't i was thinking of pleasantville Mm. and i mean i feel like that movie has a lot of similarities to the giver yeah um but i really enjoyed that movie in the sense that it was like a really like critique on kind of the same thing about you know standing out in conformity and I really want to watch that movie again. It's been a while. Yeah, there's a lot of really great movies and different types of media out there to like about the idea of, you know, breaking out of your shell and, you know, not conforming to things and just being you. Like, I mean, even Footloose. Footloose is a fantastic version of of The Giver and, you know, this stuff, too, because it's exactly the same story. It's it's 100% that where it's like you're in a society where you're being bogged down by these rules by saying like, oh, this is what's right. This is what's wrong. And you know it's wrong. And all he wants to do is dance, man. Fuck, just let him dance. <laughs> it's just it's a lot of the same same similarities, which is just great. But I think it's time to jump into some of these uh, fun little <laughs> endeavors we have here. Because, oh my god, they go into some crazy details, and it just, it's a lot. (laughs) I think the first one that we want to talk about is Project Atlantis. Um, Project Atlantis, at first when I was reading about it, it really reminded me of the game Bioshock. Um, And for those of people who don't know about Bioshock, Bioshock is the... uh, first-person action game where basically you're going through this failed society that a lot of people went and fled to to get you know freedom to do whatever the hell they wanted right and it it broke down and you're kind of exploring this the area i'm trying to like not overly explain it because i'm sure a lot of people on this show probably don't know or don't they care a lot about games maybe uh, but it's hard not to especially since our other show is all about video games <laughs> <laughs> and if you guys are interested in gaming stuff check out glitch cube that's our other game our other podcast that we do where we dive into the art form of video games a lot more but anyway it really reminded me of that kind of idea that they placated in bioshock and i'm wondering if they got inspired from this right because a lot of it sounds really really familiar but Project Atlantis was started by a man named Werner Stifel, right? And Werner Stifel, once again, like you mentioned earlier, he was a libertarian, which is very common for these utopian societies to be started by libertarians. Um, he graduated from Yale in 1942 with a degree in chemical engineering, and he actually founded the derma- dermatological uh, company Stifel Labs, which actually is still in practice today and it's one of the largest dermal i can't say that name (laughs) dermatological uh labs in place right now and that's actually how he acquired all of his wealth but what is really interesting and counterintuitive to what's going on here is that he wanted to create a society in which capitalism does not reign over their choices, but yet he has built a very successful company in which to acquire wealth in order to pursue these endeavors. <laughs> right? So, okay, first <laughs> first red flag there, right? It just doesn't doesn't really correlate which i think is just really really funny and of course uh 
he was heavily inspired by the book I, or by Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, which is a very common book to inspire a lot of libertarians. And it's actually inspired a lot of them to pursue these kind of ideas of creating, um, you know, standalone societies, thinking that it's even possible to accomplish these things. So in order to test the, the hypothesis that a free capitalist society can exist and flourish in, you know, today's world, he split up his plan into three separate parts. Um, so in part one, which he called Atlantis One, uh, the idea was to gather libertarians in a single location where they can work together to build an integrated community. Right. So that's step one of his plan, his overall huge thing. And so in 1968, in order to start gathering libertarians, what he did is he actually purchased a motel. Once again, he's just throwing money around like crazy, which I think is just so funny that he's trying to oh, get away from capitalist society. But he's buying motels and buying all this stuff. But he bought a motel in order to start gathering people. And that's where it was going to be the main hub to, you know, m gather all the resources to get everything together to then go out and build this utopia that they want. And the people, the libertarians that were coming in to help him out were able to live at the motel rent free. But then in order to fund the project even further, even though he does have the money from his lab, uh, he actually rented out the rooms to the motel as if it was a normal motel too, just to bring in some extra money, you know. Wow. doesn't hurt <laughs> exactly right so <laughs> which i think is just it's it's too much it's just hilarious but while or during this phase in the plan they act or he actually wrote a book about project atlantis kind of laying out his whole ideas of each step um and it is called the story of operation atlantis and he actually wrote it under the pseudonym of warren k stevens now, for someone who wants to create a society and invite people in, I found it really interesting that he decided to go with a pseudonym where he's trying to hide who he is from maybe the, his loved ones. Maybe he's trying to he's scared of what society might actually think of him if since he is attached to this big company. Right. So it's kind of interesting that he did that. Um, and they also created a newsletter called Atlantis News, where they had weekly updates on how the project was going and what was going on at the time. Um, they also held meetings within the motel to discuss how things are going, to discuss next steps, and also interview new uh, members to the community uh, to see if they were actually up to snuff, right? So, it, it, which I, once again, red flag, if you are trying to build a society, an open society that's going to accept people and like make everyone equal, it's interesting that they have to go through an interview process and to see if they are, you know, made of the right stuff to be <laughs> on their caliber of libertarian. So they're looking mm -hmm. for very specific people here, which I think is crazy. But in 19 <laughs> in 1970, they did find a location that they thought looked promising, and that's the Silver Shoals Case, um, which is uh, it's a little bit of land that is really interesting because it, the ownership of the land has been uh, disputed a lot during this time. So it's kind of gone back and forth between the Bahamas and Haiti as to who owns this land. So they thought that the that since this land was kind of up in the air a little bit as to who actually owned it, 
then they can jump in and kind of acquire what's you know, like acquire it easily and use it as their main utopian society where they want to live. So that's part one of his plan. Part two, Atlantis two, um, is to acquire an ocean vessel and declare it to be independent craft sailing under the flag of their new country while in international waters. So international waters is actually really important to his plans because in international waters, you can kind of do what you want. Like there's no law. He doesn't have to follow the laws of the U.S. anymore so he can get away with a lot of things. But they actually in their plans in his book, he wanted to make sure that he stayed close enough to the United States to ensure trading with them so they can still acquire resources and he can still check back in with his company and they can acquire wealth that way. But he wanted to be far enough away where he didn't have to follow U.S. laws. So it's a little like he's just kind of looking out for himself in a way, right? So during this time, they actually constructed a pharaoh cement boat, which I thought was interesting that they made a cement boat. <laughs> but it's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's already like, you guys don't really know what you're doing, do you? <laughs> so it's really, really crazy. But for those of you who don't know what pharaoh cement is, pharaoh cement is a very specific process in which you use um, wire mesh and cement mix uh, to make a very reinforced concrete basically. And they built an entire boat out of this. And another thing that they decided to do during this phase is they actually began to mint coins, which they call the DECA. And you can actually acquire DECA coins today. Like people still have them in rotation because they minted so many of them, which is it's actually oh really God. interesting. And I kind of want a DECA coin because it's kind of funny. Uh, <laughs> But in 1971, after the construction of the boat was completed, they set sail in the Hudson River. They're finally off to their destination. Utopia, here we come. Well, high tide came in. It kind of tipped the boat. It wasn't on balance fully because these people don't know how to make boats. And none of them were master craftsmen. They just decided to do this. And then a fire started on the boat. And it made it caused a lot of damage. And actually, during the construction or reconstruction phase of the boat, um, when they're trying to fix the fire damage, they constructed a um, concrete platform on there uh, to. Why? <laughs> well, it was so that they can, you know, move some damaged stuff around. They can move things around, have an extra area that was safe for them to walk. But it turns out, guess what? You put a lot of weight on there, extra weight on there. Now the boat's even more off balance, and the boat almost sank again. Neil's day, they ended up fixing that issue too. <laughs> and then later on, during their journey, uh, they were passing by South Carolina. And during that time, or during that, yeah, while they were passing by South Carolina, one of their propeller shafts actually broke. And they were, luckily enough, they were close enough to um, South Carolina, so they were able to get some sort of resources together. And then they decided to continue on their journey despite all of the issues that they were running into. And they did actually make it to their destination. Yay, right? So everything's going, it's it's just struggle, but through struggle comes great reward, right? So yeah, everything yeah. should be good. Well, once they got there, <laughs> a major hurricane came by and it actually sunk the boat. <laughs> there goes there goes oh plan God. or part of Atlantis to 
died in the water, technically. But that did not stop Stifle at all. He wanted to keep going with this endeavor. He was not giving up on it. And that's where Atlantis 3 started coming into play, the third part of the plan. And the third part of the plan is using this vessel and possibly an island, create sovereign or create a sovereign country as close to the U.S. shores as possible. Once again, stay close to the U.S. so they can still ensue trading and still acquire goods, but still have their own freedom and be able to make up their own laws. So during the third phase of the plan, they did end up getting a new boat and they made it to their area. Like they made it to the area that they want to do construction. Now, the, the area that they decided to do construction on did have some issues. And it's some... I. And the surface, you wouldn't really call them issues. Guess what? This place is lined with gold and silver. There's a lot of it out there. Now, <laughs> another thing that was very <laughs> prominent in the area due to the amount of gold and silver was pirates and thieves. And so that was a kind of a big issue. So one day while they're doing construction on their island, a Haitian gunship approaches them not knowing who they are because they didn't tell anyone in the government they were coming down there. Uh, they thought that they were thieves and pirates, so they threatened to shoot them and sink them if they did not leave the area immediately. So they did. <laughs> so, <laughs> to avoid any issues with the Haitian government and avoid being sunk, they decided to leave the area. Now, it they, they still didn't give up. <laughs> like They really, really wanted to make this thing happen. So to avoid any further issues, Stifle uh, took out a long-term lease for an island called Tortuga uh, from the Haitian government. So finally, he did speak to the Haitian government because he realized, I can't accomplish things in another country without telling the government I'm here to do them. Um, <laughs> yeah, right? Duh. Makes sense. So he was able to get a long-term lease on this island, um, and they said in the lease that they were working on a landfill with a post or like a, a man-made island off to the side for living quarters and things like that but they it was under the guise of a landfill so they were lying um and at one point the haitian government actually found a copy of the atlantis news then realized the ultimate goal that they were trying to set in place and immediately canceled the lease on the island <laughs> and told them they have to leave so like you are not building this like false utopia here you're not no like you said you're doing this sort of landfill you lied to us get out of here right so like at this point there's so many things going against him you would think that he would just stop right <laughs> just just come on and you know right now a lot of members from his society were starting to leave. They were they were going back to the U.S. because they kept hitting roadblock after roadblock, and it just didn't seem like this was going to happen. But Stifle did not give up. He per like he pushed through, and he ended up finding a new location between Cuba and Honduras. So, and then he even was able to acquire an old oil tanker. Uh, but unfortunately, there was another tropical storm and the oil tanker sunk as well. So there's a lot of, a lot of issues. It just keeps <laughs> piling on for this guy. I kind of feel bad for him. But then at the same time, I don't because he's 
trying to avoid capitalist society by exploiting capitalism, you know, and buying islands and all that, whatever. It is what it is. But so eventually, after more attempts to purchase islands, one of the lead project managers bought a small island. So Stifle didn't even buy this island. And one of the project managers did um, under their name so that be- they didn't have Stifle's name attached to it because people were starting to know who this guy was in the area, right? So the project manager ends up buying a small island where Stifle and the few remaining members ended up living out the rest of their lives. They actually lived there until 2005 uh, when Stifle was diagnosed with cancer and died a year later, which just kind of crazy. Like he did finally, yeah, right? <laughs> like he did kind of finally get his island lifestyle, but the whole Atlantis society never really came into place. And the whole time he's like fighting through all these crazy issues, battling weather, like battling the idea of like pirates and thieves and all that. Right? Like there's a lot going on. So you can kind of like you have to commend the guy at least for being able to persevere through so much just pushback. But uh, all of his ideas of the whole thing of just being an anti-capitalist society, uh, like being able to fend for themselves and do everything on their own, make their own laws. It just everything he said was so counterintuitive to the actions that they were doing. They the fact that he had this very prosperous community or company that was funding this all these projects uh, back in the states, and the fact that he wanted to make sure that they stayed close enough to the U.S. coast so that they can you know acquire their wealth and be able to trade and be able to seek help and refuge if necessary. Like it just really defeated the whole purpose of everything that was going on. And it's just a lot, man. (laughs) It's just so weird. And (laughs) I love this story. I love, I love this idea. And like, I, I don't know, man. Like, yes, the utopian society didn't end up happening. And no, nothing really outlandish or horrible happened in there. They didn't have, you know, random creepy laws that they put into place. There was no child trafficking, which happens a lot in these cult societies. There was no mass suicides. But the story is really interesting because it just shows the kind of mentality that these people have whenever they want to build these societies up and the links that they'll go to to make this happen, right? So I don't know. what What's your take on Project Atlantis? I, I talked a lot about it, I know, but it was one of like, I was falling in love with the story whenever I was reading it. I always thought it was interesting, you know, how people were like, oh, I'm just going to create an island and create a civilization there. Because I remember growing up, I always heard stories of people wanting to do that and, you know, find a way to escape, like, capitalist ideas and stuff. And, you know, obviously, none of those have really ever worked. You know, it's seeing as how most islands and areas are controlled by a country it's impossible to really have like your own land unless you go so far out into the ocean which i mean at that point it's pretty impossible to create an actual yeah, island creating an island you know i was resources or any backing or anything like that it's damn near impossible yeah and it's like okay, if you're going to want to create your own island, what, are you going to pour cement and stuff down there to create land? Like, that's easy to do in lakes and maybe off the coast. 
to places. You know, you look at Dubai with their man-made islands and other areas in the world where they created small little areas, but to create a huge island it, that far out, it, it's not going to work unless you make the island like a gigantic boat. You know, think about like an oil rig, like how they're kind of like just suspended there in the water. You would have to do something like that. And even then, it's not economically like feasible, in my opinion. Like it's not worth it. I mean, it's it's cool hearing people's ideas and wanting to create new like societies and stuff. But unless you have the land first, there's no reason to really start it. You know, I mean... I feel like the only person that could probably do something like that nowadays is like, I don't know, Elon Musk. Like, he has the money. Yeah. He could create his own yeah. little island if he wanted to. You know, like... Some may say he is on Mars, right? <laughs> it's a weird idea. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that'll be, instead of creating an own island, he'll just yeah. take Mars, you know? But, you know, I... When we were looking at this idea, I mean, granted, this isn't a failed utopia, but it was... It's a failed attempt you know, at a utopia, right? A man-made... I I always like found the story of Sealand interesting. It's uh it's basically like this weird structure off of England that uh was a sea mm. fort during World War II. And someone bought it and tried to make like a sovereign state out of it. And the population I think is still twenty seven people, but they even fought uh fought off like a band of mercenaries wow. in like the late seventies. And if you look at it, it literally looks like, I don't want to say an oil rig, but it's basically two columns with this flat, uh, looks like a flat mm -hmm. metal board on it. I can't really think of the right term for it, but it, it just looks like a platform. And then there's like a helipad on mm -hmm. top for people to fly in and that's it. And there's a house on there and it's like something like that. That could be more feasible. Granted, it was a fort beforehand, so right. the structure existed. But it's it's known as the world's smallest country, but it still sits in like British waters, so it's not like its own yeah. separate society. And that's the thing is that a lot of these people that try to create these societies can't find an area that's free of any kind of government control. And Honestly, I feel like the only place really people could easily do it, and by easy, I mean not easy, but like Antarctica, because it's like there's no mm -hmm. government there. You know, like it's, I think it's all international yeah. land when you think about it. I mean, it's protected land, but yeah, but, it is international land. So it's, it, to me, this, this story is so interesting because it's the idea of like, <sighs> It's it's tough to really like put it into words, right? Like it, it like you mentioned, they're they're trying to create a sovereign state. They're trying to break out, break free, but it's not as easy as people think, right? Like there's there's and I always find it interesting too, like this this is a perfect example of it where a lot of these utopian societies are looking for basically summer homes, right? Like they're they're trying to put them in places mm -hmm. in which oh, this is considered like a paradise in its own right, right? Like they, a lot of them are in really like great, you know, like a, a great weather areas, really high populated, or not high populated, but highly traveled, right? Like it's, it's weird. Like they're, it's like they're trying to make their own summer homes where they don't have to listen to laws. 
And it's, I don't know, it's a lot. <laughs> and like, it, it's, it's crazy to think that like, you know, there are a lot of islands out there in this world that probably either, I mean, obviously everything has to have been discovered by now because we have satellites and stuff, but you know, there's areas far away that if somehow someone was able to transport all the goods to create an island or expand the island, they could do it. Granted, it's going to be far out in the ocean. And when you're that far out, who can really see you building that, right? It's not like you're building off the coast where like anyone can spot you. So, I mean, if someone was able to fly or take a boat to one of these far out islands where they won't be seen, you could build something. But at the same time, it's like, who would want to live in a right. place so far away from everything where like, okay, you're going to have to wait for the helicopter to fly in once a week with all the resources, you know, and there's not going to be like any internet, there's not going to be anything like it's going to be detached. And it, to me, being that detached, mm -hmm. it's not really a utopia, you know, you don't, and granted, a lot of people out there don't need the internet, they don't need all that stuff, but it's like. A utopia to me is when everything is provided and there's peace and you don't have to stress about anything. But if you're on an island where you don't have a lot of the modern generation's quality of life. Basic amenities. You know, improvements. Even. Yeah, like it, that doesn't sound like a utopia. Yeah, being free of a government control does sound nice, but it's right. like and at the same time, what is the cost? And you need help, right? Like you're shunning and pushing away society, mm -hmm. but it's the same thing. Like, well, yeah, a lot of times too. Like, if you, I I don't want to see a cop in my neighborhood unless I need a cop, right? Like, it's it's kind of the same idea. Where it's like, oh, like if, if once you're once they're in trouble, like think about in their situation, they could have been raided by pirates, and who the hell are they going to turn to? Like, they can't turn to the Haitian government. They can't turn to uh, America because, like, who's going to help them? Like, they're they're literally like a fish out of water at that point, right? Like they're, they're stuck. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Yep. And like I said, this isn't one of the more extreme examples of what could happen in these failed utopias, but let's, let's kind of dive into one that does go into those extremes. This oh, one... Boy. I think this episode this episode is going to be a little long, but I think it's worth it because this is so <laughs> whenever you think about utopia, failed utopias or like cult societies, this is like the pinnacle example of it. Right. So there's a gosh, this one's so mad. I, it's so weird to me. I love it. And a lot of people might know this this area or this story, but there's a, the area or the the community of on Oneida, right? And Oneida is actually a well-known company. They make silverware, or they used to. They actually went out of business uh, in 2005, I believe. But a lot of people had Oneida silverware. And it came from a cult community. Like, they made this silverware that is so popular. And it was known as, like, the silverware for the wealthy for a long time. And it was all made by this weird kind of creepy cult. <laughs> so it's it's very, very interesting background story. Uh, but so, yeah, that, there's a lot to it. 
So let's just jump right into this. So they've been making silverware since 1877, uh, but there's a really big secret that they were holding back the entire time. So the founder, John Humphrey Noyes, uh, he wanted to create a perfect society, or at least perfect in his eyes, right? This is kind of, it's not perfect. It's really messed up. <laughs> but at the age of 20, he attended a tent revival service and was actually converted by the Second Great Awakening. Um, the Second Great Awakening was a different religious sect where they believed that Jesus actually was resurrected in the year 70. So he already was here and the world is already made in his perfect image because he's back, right? That, that was kind of their mm -hmm. idea. So he took the idea of perfectionism and expanded on that, right? So after hearing this uh, tent revival and after being converted to this religion, he was determined to become a preacher for the cause, um, but his views were a little bit uh, <laughs> skewed from the rest of the cause. He took some things a little too far um, where he was actually, he kind of gave the, the Second Great Awakening a bad look, right? Because of everything that ended up happening from this. But yeah. It's a lot. So he adopted the religious doctrine of perfectionism because that was the main idea that like that with Jesus already coming back and being resurrected, perfectionism has been like reached, right? So in the idea of perfection or, or in his doctrine, um, he believed that man has the ability to be spiritually and physically perfect, which led him to believe that he has already reached perfection. So in his eyes, he's already perfect and he is the perfect vessel to now deliver the word of god and to you know help bring people along with this message um <laughs> while he was attending yale he was actually preaching a lot about this about the idea of perfectionism and about the idea of the second great awakening and he was actually kicked out of yale for his beliefs um he ended up becoming homeless and wandered around preaching his beliefs trying to acquire followers uh, he did actually be, or start to convince people to join along with him while he was traveling around, uh, but it was a very small group during this time, and uh, at that time, he met a woman named Abigail Merwin, uh, who he was very smitten with. He was drawn to her immediately. Uh, he wanted to be with her, he, and he was a very sexual person, and he just wanted to, you know, he wanted Abigail, but the problem was is that she was actually married. And so this gave him the wonderful idea of coming up with the concept of spiritual spouses, which later ended up evolving into spiritual polyamory. So he believed that the traditional concept of marriage was selfish and did not allow all to love all men and all women equally. So in his main beliefs, what he preached a lot about was that you need to share your love equally with everyone. If you were married, you're being selfish because you're holding that love specifically for one person. So remember that idea of uh, the idea of spreading love equally because that is what is like the core center of the of this community that ends up being built here in Oneida. So, <laughs> uh, it's so like I keep like thinking about it. I'm like getting like, oh gosh, like here it comes, right? So, one of the quotes that we actually came from him was uh, When the will of God is down on earth as it is in heaven, there will be no marriage, exclusiveness, jealousy, 
quarreling have no place at the marriage supper of the Lamb. I call a certain woman my wife. She is yours. She is Christ's. And in him, she is the bride of all saints. She is now in the hands of a stranger. And according to my promise to her, I rejoice. My claim upon my cuts directly across the marriage covenant of the world. And God knows the end. So he's a messiah. Of basically, cuts. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's exactly yeah. what it is. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. So in 1846, he amassed around three dozen followers and began to call their group the Society of Inquiry. So to question things, to think about it, like think about society and how we can better. Right? They're inquiring about everything. And, you know, three dozen followers. Good job. I guess that's that's pretty good when you compare it nowadays to millions of followers that people get. But, you know, in the 1800s, he was able to get 36 people to believe him while he's homeless and walking around on the streets, which is pretty impressive, in my opinion. So <laughs> also at this time, also at this time, his idea of spiritual polyamory was taken to the next level when he convinced 10 people, including himself and two of his sisters, to enter into a marriage contract where they were all married to one another. So what the big fuck? old happy family, including his sisters. Everyone's married to one another. Um, unfortunately, later on, he ended up being arrested for committing adultery. Um, during this time, adultery was a, you know, a, a offense that you can actually serve time for. So he was arrested for it. Once he got out uh, to avoid further prosecution, he moved the group to Oneida, New York, where everything kind of spirals into this horrible, weird cult that he has. Uh, they then changed the name of the group to the community. And this is when uh, the more cult-like behaviors really began to, to come up. So some of the things that they did in the community was that new members were required to sleep under the same roof. So everyone that was new was able, they were forced to sleep in the same room uh, so that there was the idea of sameness. Everyone is treated equal, that no one is getting any special treatment and getting their own quarters or anything like that. Uh, no one was allowed to show emotional attachment towards one specific person that was meant for the group. You were meant to show emotional attachment to everyone. There was no singling out in this community. Um, if you showed if you showed too much love for your own child, then you were separated for a time from the child or even vice versa. If the child showed too much affection towards the parent, then that child was then separated from the parent as well. So the the idea of like specialized affection was even taken that far to parent and child relationships which is a lot, man, that's, that's rough. Um, and it even went so far that the children did not even live with their parents. The children were born and uh, raised by caregivers. So it was raised by the community. Everyone raised these children. So basically, like, you had no parents. Everyone was your parent, which is kind of a lot. Weird. Yeah. So this is where it got awkward. I would say everything already is awkward, but I feel like this is where they took it really, really far. So once again, just remember that noise is a very sexual person. He feels that the way to express your feelings was through sex. That was like his main draw. And it kind of came a lot from his youth growing up where he was made fun of a lot for the way he looked. He had red hair, freckles. He considered himself ugly. And so 
it, yeah, it all kind of stems from that, his own insecurities. But once the child or once the children reached puberty, uh, they were then assigned to different men or women within the group to perform sexual acts. Uh, for instance, the boys were sent to interview, quote unquote, uh, with spiritually devoted postmenopausal women because there was no fear of them becoming pregnant. So these 14-year-old boys were being sent to postmenopausal women to practice having sex and to practice holding back their orgasm. Uh, that was a big thing for them was that they, uh, they wanted the men to be able to not orgasm at all uh, to help. It was basically like their version of birth control, right? Like he was Edging, a really big yeah. guy. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So they wanted everyone to do that because they felt that like, they didn't want to have too many kids um, to, you know, because they didn't have the resources for the community to continue growing that way. And in order to have children, you had to apply for it, which is crazy. And then the elders decided if they accepted your application or not. Um, while that does sound pretty crazy and harsh, uh, apparently in the history books or according to their records, only nine people were ever denied their application for children uh so it wasn't like they were turning away everyone so if you did want to have a kid that was fine but <laughs> gosh it's so weird uh, so the boys were taught to not have an orgasm and the reason why is actually that they wanted to make sure that the female reach climax before the male did because they felt that it was more like she reached more spiritual enlightenment through her orgasm so that was kind of like their process in that way and the girls did not you know get away from these interviews either they were sent to elderly men the elders to practice sexual activities so that they can know how to please the man um and they did it with the elders because there was no fear of any pregnant or unknown pregnancies coming up right it was less likely that way uh so it just it's just gross man it's just freaking gross and the whole time everyone is with everybody it's it's a whole like free love hippie kind of idea right like the whole community is basically married to one another and once the children reached adulthood then they would apply to have interviews quote unquote interviews with other community members and then if they were deemed that it was okay then they can go off and do their own thing for a little bit right so it just yeah it's it's a lot it's a lot to take in now one of the interesting things and probably one of the more positive things that i did find from this community is that the men and the women were pretty were actually treated equal within the community. Uh, women were not just stuck doing house labor. And remember, this is during the 1800s, so this is a pretty big deal. Women were not just in the house cooking, cleaning, and doing all that stuff. Men weren't just out doing manual labor and everything. It was a nice mix. If men wanted to do house cleaning and chores, then they did the house cleaning and chores. If women wanted to go out and chop wood and do all that stuff and farm, they went and did that. There was no... They didn't 
tell you based off of your gender that you could do something or you couldn't do something. So that was actually very progressive for their society, especially during the 1800s, which I thought was really interesting. But eventually the community did begin to crumble uh, when more laws about marriage began to arise in the U.S. And fearing prosecution, Noyes actually left the community and fled to Canada because he was afraid that he was going to be arrested for adultery uh, once again. And without their leader, obviously, the community began to fall apart. Um, one of the big components that made the community fall apart, actually, was the children going away to college and then coming back, realizing that the way that they grew up was actually not the way everyone else in the world grows up. <laughs> and so they brought back their new world ideas, realizing that the issues that they were you know, running into in the community, and it just kind of eventually disbanded. Now, after the cult disbanded Oneida, the silverware silverware company did not disband. They continued to make silverware, and they actually spread up the wealth of the company based off of the people who contributed the most money in the beginning, also uh, who put in the most work. So they were able to divvy up the shares that way, and they kept Oneida going until 2005, which eventually it did go bankrupt. It was bought by another silverware company, and then that silverware company also went bankrupt two years later, and now we don't have anything. So yeah, that's Oneida the Silverware Company. So next time you see Oneida at like TJ Maxx or wherever the hell you you find it now, like think about that this came from a sex cult (laughs) it's a really weird way to think about it but it's true so this is kind of an example of one of those more utopian societies where they actually built the society up and they they thrived in it but it was one where they really really pushed their ideals and it was in like the more disturbing ways right it's it's a lot (laughs) i know yeah, it's like, you know, there's there's a difference between like just forming like a sex cult. Like, you know, there's many of those that have happened over our lifetime. But like creating a civilization where it's like normalized, like it's almost kind of scary, you know, to think like if they could get like thousands of people on board with it, like it's dangerous mentality. Yeah. To they were able to make an, they were able to make a successful business. They were integrated in like high wealth society. Like they like the one thing I didn't touch on real quick, noise actually came from a very wealthy family. His father was a congressman, so they had connections in Congress, too. Mm -hmm. So like that makes me think that like that's kind of how they got away with some of these things, because even his sisters were involved into the in the community. So there's there's a lot going on here and it's pretty messed up. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's I this story, man, like it just it, it blew me away whenever I heard about it to think that this happened right here on American soil. And there's so many more interesting, cult, like crazy stories that happened right here in our own backyard. Right. And we definitely want to explore all those other ones out there, too, because it's a lot. And I know this episode's a little bit longer than our usual ones, but it re this stuff is too fascinating to pass up, right? It's oh, yeah. Too, it's too much, like, there's too much information, but there's too much interesting information. And I think there's a lot to learn from from these failed utopias. And the idea, like, yes, it is good to have individuality, but also at the same time, make sure, like, if you're really, like, all these people harp on the idea that they actually care about, like, everyone being equal and all this stuff, and they 
don't show it in their practices. And usually the ones who speak the loudest are the ones who are hiding the most from you. And people really need to realize that and stop falling into these things, like even with pyramid schemes or things like that, right? Like it, it's all the same ideas where it's just different forms of manipulation. And it's just, yeah, it, there's a lot to really break down and just it's such an interesting stuff to think about and just examine. But yeah, like, uh, don't go into a sex cult. <laughs> don't marry your sisters. It's weird. It's fucking weird. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so do you have any any final thoughts on Oneida? Uh, well, I I had heard about the, the company before and didn't realize that was the origins of it. So it's, it's uh, let's say, disgustingly fascinating. Yeah. But... Yeah. It's it's scary to think that's not the only place that that kind of ideas have you know come to fruition. Yeah, fr- however you say that word, <laughs> can't speak right now. But yeah, uh, between both of these like utopias or you know societies, it's fascinating. Even though they are totally different in their ideas of what their utopia would be like their core beliefs in the beginning were, you know, the same to escape. And it's interesting because it makes you wonder, like, did these secondary ideas, you know, like with like the sex stuff, like were those there all the way from the beginning or did they like start forming when they realized, oh, we could probably get away with really changing, you know, the ideology. And it's, it's interesting to see like how these, societies kind of like evolve from what they started at and Mm -hmm. how dark they can become as well yeah yeah there's a lot to unpack there but i think that's going to do it for us this week we've kind of run in a little bit longer than usual but definitely we will be returning to the idea of failed utopias we will be continuing on with this because there's a lot of them out there there's a lot of interesting ideas that happen within like different cult communities as well uh and they just there's a lot of similarities and there's some really interesting differences too. And they all come, they all seem to come from the same place. Like you said, the idea of like, they, it almost feels like they come from a good place to start, but then they start to devolve into something very malicious or horrible or disgusting. So yeah, but with that, that's going to do it for us. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for joining in. Hope you guys enjoyed. If you do have any failed utopias or anything out there that you found interesting that you want us to talk about or, you know, do some research on, send them our way, please. You can find us on all the socials where wherever you want. And uh, yeah, with that, thank you very much. We'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Bye.